Hey guys, welcome back to episode 6 of the Wednesday Boys. We're so glad that you're here, and on today's podcast, we have Miss Deucing. So Miss Deucing, would you mind introducing yourself? Hi, thanks so much for having me on your show today. I'm very excited by what you're doing and your mission. And I just wanted to let you know that I'm so grateful for the opportunity to be here to talk about cerebral slash cortical visual impairment, or CVI. My name is Stephanie Dusing, and I am the author of Eyeless Mind, a memoir about seeing and being seen. Eyeless Mind is the true story of how I, an ordinary music teacher, made a major medical discovery in the field of visual neuroplasticity. I am a former music teacher, an author, and now I'm a speaker and international advocate for people who have CVI, which is a brain-based vision impairment that's entirely different from ocular blindness. We are so thankful that you're able to be on the podcast today and to share your story with our audience. Oh, so, I'm so grateful to be here. I guess my first question is, what is your story and how did you come across CVI? That's a great question. Thanks for asking it. So in 2017, I had never heard of CVI, and um, we literally discovered it by accident. I happened to be going through old photos with my son Sebastian. My son Sebastian is a 15 year, was a 15-year-old back in 2017, and he was a straight-A honor student, and he's a very gifted artist who draws and paints with photographic realism when he wants to. And um, he was an athlete. He was on the diving team and the water polo teams at his school. And we had absolutely no idea that my son had any disability of any kind whatsoever. So we happened to be going through old photos. And I am that kind of mom who very diligently made my son a baby book and then never did another thing with the rest of the pictures. So I have lots of pictures that we had never really gone through at all for years. And so we were, he, Sebastian was sitting next to me on the sofa and we were going through his old baby pictures and I was narrating to him about who was in the pictures because there was a lot of people he hadn't seen for a long time. You know, we have family all over the place that we don't see regularly. So I was saying things like, oh, there you are with your cousins from Canada and, you know, we haven't seen them in like seven years. And, oh, there you are with our neighbors from the old house we lived in when you were a baby that we haven't seen since you were a baby, right? So I was doing that type of thing. And we've been doing this for about half an hour and Sebastian is an only child. So he was looking at pictures of his own face for about half an hour when we kind of migrated up from the baby years into the toddler and then the preschool years. And all of a sudden, the cutest picture of my son just popped up on the computer screen. And I said, oh, look, who's that? And it was crickets. And finally, he just said, how should I know? And the hairs on the back of my neck just stood up because it was very obviously him. And he'd been looking at pictures of his own face now for half an hour. And I, at that time in 2017, I had never heard of face blindness or prosopagnosia. I didn't know that it was actually possible for a human being to be face blind and not to be able to recognize faces. I had never heard of CVI. So I was astonished because here I am sitting next to my very gifted artist who draws and paints faces all the time with beautiful accuracy. And here he is not recognizing his own face. And so... That night, I immediately started quizzing him, and I was there was other pictures of me and my husband, you know, 15 years younger with less gray hair and a little thinner and, you know, but still obviously us and everybody else in the pictures, and he was very obviously guessing 
and not knowing. So I knew something was very wrong. So that night I started researching on my phone, just Googling facial recognition problems with facial recognition and all kinds of things came up about like facial recognition software. And back in 2017, there was very little information that I could find about CVI or any, any of its symptoms on the web. So I eventually, after some time, found the right combination of words to search and I found prosopagnosia which is the inability or the difficulty in recognizing faces. And so then I thought, oh, well, it's a real thing. My son has a real thing and well, it's a quirk and I wasn't too concerned. We all have quirks, it was not a big deal. But the very next day we discovered that my son had taught himself to navigate by counting his steps and turns and had been navigating our own home that way since he was a toddler and his school and our neighborhood. And we had absolutely no idea and that's when I became scared because we had always viewed our son the only way we had ever seen him, which was as a very gifted student. He had very intense plans to go off to school and go off to college. And I knew then at that point that it was not safe for him to go off to college and try to live independently if he didn't have orientation and mobility skills and could learn to navigate by using technology because I knew he couldn't just follow people around and just try to count his steps and turns everywhere. And so that's when our journey began. And we had a horrific experience trying to get a diagnosis. Although CVI was identified as the number one cause of visual impairment in the developed world more than 10 years ago, it still does not have a diagnostic code. There are tens of thousands of people here in the U.S. alone who have CVI, and they are struggling to gain access to diagnostic, educational, and habilitative services, just like we did. We made an appointment for my son to see his neuropsychologist, who had just recently done a full neuropsych evaluation on my son for a completely unrelated um, concussion just a few weeks before. And I went into this appointment with this doctor using the correct medical terminology to describe my son's symptoms. And this doctor looked at me like I was crazy and said, I can't help you and I don't know anyone who can. Good luck with that. And he dropped us. And we went from doctor to doctor to doctor to doctor. We saw optometrists neuro-optometrists, ophthalmologists, neuro-ophthalmologists, neurologists, neuropsychologists, and we traveled across the country looking for anyone who could diagnose my son and prescribe a couple of weeks of orientation and mobility training with the white cane for my blind son. And we were labeled crazy by the medical establishment and we were horrifically emotionally and psychologically abused. It was awful. We had more than $150,000 in medical bills trying to get a diagnosis for what turned out to be actually a common visual impairment. CVI is actually known to be more common than ocular blindness, and it is a true public health crisis, which is why I'm here today on your show and so happy to talk about this, because children who have CVI are commonly misdiagnosed with autism, behavioral and emotional disorders, and um, it's it's just a tragedy what happens to these kids. I mean, that that's just terrible. For the medical community to not believe you when you're using the correct terminology, when you're obviously showing that he has um, some kind of visual impairment, it's just, it's terrible to see that. Well, thank you. 
because we actually had actual documentation of what I was saying because in the form of two separate IQ tests. So my son actually skipped a grade. My son, he is, I'll tell you a little bit more about his actual condition. My son has CVI and his form of CVI is actually an entirely invisible disability. If you met him, you would not be able to tell that he's almost completely blind, academically, socially, intellectually, physically, nothing. There's no way to tell by observing him that he's blind. So he completely flew under the radar. And in fact, the part of the reason that he flew under the radar is because Sebastian is the only person in the world known to process his vision verbally, which means that he quite literally sees with words, just like a bat sees with sound. And so I know everybody in your audience right now is going, what on earth did she just say? And it's true. Sebastian spent six hours in the fMRI for the Laboratory for Visual Neuroplasticity at the Shepin's Eye Research Institute, where Dr. Latfi Marabet captured his use of verbal mediation to process his vision in the fMRI and published a paper on it in Neurobiologia last fall in collaboration with Dr. Barry Cran, who's the head of optometrics at the New England Eye Low Vision Clinic at the Perkins School for the Blind. And I will be happy to put that in the show notes afterwards for anybody who'd like to read it. So what that means is that Sebastian, not just does he have no ability to recognize faces and places, he also has something called object agnosia. So he can't recognize faces, places, or objects. And he has basically the only things that he can see the way that typically sighted people see are words, letters, numbers, and simple shapes because the areas of the brain that recognize those things aren't damaged. And so Sebastian has a visual access to numeracy and literacy. And he actually, he taught himself to read and write when he was two and a half years old. And when he was four, he was reading and understanding the old Nancy Drew books that full of lawyerly language that I remember struggling with as a third grader. And so he was identified as gifted very early on. And he actually, um, in December of his third grade year, his gifted teacher came flying out of the school building in the morning when I was dropping him off and it was 20 degrees out. She had no coat on and she came running over to tell me that Sebastian had finished the fourth grade math book first quarter of third grade without any help whatsoever from us or anybody and that they felt that he needed to skip a grade because they could not meet his needs educationally in the grade he was in. We actually fought the grade promotion for social reasons. He had a really nice group of friends in the grade he was in, and we actually didn't know any of the kids in the grade above. And we ended up acquiescing, acquiescing to the grade promotion because it was the least bad of the three options the school district gave us. And it turned out to be a wonderful thing for Sebastian. So what I'm saying is when Sebastian went through the grade promotion process, he had to have an IQ test. They evaluate every part of you when you go through the grade promotion, socially, academically, physically, athletically. And so getting an IQ test was one part of this process. And when he did that, we saw that Sebastian scored in the 99th percentile, at the very top in the verbal portion of the IQ test, but he was just above average in the visual spatial part. And there was a very large gap between those two scores. And also there is a gap between those scores and his actual performance. So Sebastian has always scored in the 99th percentile in both math and English on all um, standardized testing without any 
any quizzing or any support or promotion from us. I'm actually not much of a homework mom. I don't really believe in it until you turn 12. So we had this very odd gap in his scores and the visual spatial was significantly lower than, than his actual um, performance was. And I asked the person, the doctor who, who gave this test, what that meant. And this would have been a chance where this person should have said, that's a sign that maybe he should be evaluated for CDI. But instead, what we were told is, he's just not as smart as you think he is. And we were dismissed. And so again, when Sebastian was a sophomore in high school, he had a very severe concussion. He got it in PE while he was swimming in the pool, and he clunked his head against the side of the pool while he was doing a flip turn. And um, totally unrelated to the CVI, but it was a serious concussion, and so he had a full neuropsyche valve done then. And in that neuropsyche valve, again, 99th percentile in the visual space, I'm sorry, in the verbal part of, part of the IQ test, but this time he was borderline impaired in visual spatial. And so I had these two tests with these gigantic gaps between the verbal IQ and the visual spatial. And I'm there at the doctor's appointments with both of these documents. And eventually I was even bringing in his standardized test scores, trying to show the doctors, look, we have these giant gaps between his verbal IQ and his visual spatial scores and his actual performance in the 99th percentile on both math and English. What does this mean? And the answer was nothing. It doesn't mean anything. <laughs> yes. So, I mean, it was absolutely insane. It was crazy. So they just like didn't like recognize it or they received no in it because CBI does not have a diagnostic code. The vast majority of both doctors and educators receive no training in it whatsoever. And so actually what happened to us is common. We're actually not different. This happens every day, all across the world, all the time to people who have CBI. And it's just tragic because, for example, I have a very dear friend who just discovered that her daughter has CBI this past school year. And um, at the age of 12, this child passed for fit, typically sighted, just like my son did. And um, this child, unlike my son, my, we got really, really lucky that my son has visual access to numeracy and literacy because he can actually see and recognize words and letters and numbers and symbols. However, a lot of people have CBI can't do that. And so no matter how much they try to practice it, it doesn't matter. It just doesn't ever form a visual memory because that part of the brain is broken. So this child is brilliant. And just like my son is perfectly capable of describing her functional vision, just like my son is now that she knows that her vision is different. And I will add that all children who are born with CVI assume that their vision is typical because they have nothing to compare it to. They assume that everybody sees what they see. So they cannot tell you, oh, I can't see, because they don't know that they can't see. They've never seen with the brain that sees. And so this child didn't know she was blind any more than my son did. And so... She's absolutely brilliant. The mom is brilliant. And they have done absolutely every reading intervention known under the sun and to no success. And finally, this child was diagnosed with CVI. And I think they've had about three months of Braille training, maybe four now. And this child is reading at grade level for the very first time. It is astonishing 
what can be done if you can just give these kids what they need and recognize that they're visually impaired or blind. Oh, that's, that's incredible. It really is. Well, thank you. So I would like to also share a little bit more about what CVI is. So CVI, as I mentioned, is a brain-based vision impairment. It is not an intellectual disability. It's a vision impairment. And the Perkins School for the Blind has recognized that just this past year for the very first time that all people who have CVI are visually impaired slash blind. They're not, they're not intellectually disabled. And so what happens when you have this I think most of your listeners know what ocular blindness is. That's what most typically sighted people think of as everything being dark, which, by the way, is also a stereotype. The vast majority of people who have ocular blindness have some perception of light and some use of their vision. It's, it's, it's a gradation. Well, CVI is a brain-based vision impairment, and so what that means is when the light comes through the eye and hits the back of the eye, it is transmitted into an electrical signal that passes through the optic nerve and goes past the lateral geniculate nuclei, or the LGN, and then it travels to the back of the brain. It takes about a tenth of a second before there's any conscious perception of sight. From the time the light hits the eye to the time it hits the back of the brain, it's a tenth of a second to travel that distance before there is any conscious perception of sight whatsoever, which means that we literally see with our brains. Our eyes don't see anything on their own. They are just light collectors. And so the brain, more than 40% of our brain is devoted to visual processing. And it starts in the back of the brain. And then there are basically, there's two pathways and they are interconnected and they talk to each other. But the one pathway goes up the top and the back of the brain and it's called the dorsal pathway of visual processing. And then there's another pathway that goes up from the back of the brain through the center of the brain. And that's called the ventral stream of the processing. And the dorsal stream is where issues with, for example, finding someone in a crowded area or a visually crowded scene, having difficulties that, with that. So, for example, someone who has problems with dorsal stream processing would have no ability or really struggle with an activity like Where's Waldo? That's a very visually crowded thing to try to find Waldo in a very visually crowded um, um, scene. So that's dorsal stream dysfunction. Ventral stream dysfunction is where we're talking about things like visual memory. So if you touch your right ear and your, your scalp right above and behind your right ear, that's where the right fusiform gyrus of the brain is. And that's where facial recognition takes place. So if you have damage to the right fusiform gyrus of your brain, you're very likely to have difficulty or an impossibility recognizing faces like my son does. And also, the ability to recognize your environment is processed right close to that. And so people who are face blind very often also have topographical agnosia as, as well. And that's the inability to recognize your surroundings. So for people who have topographical, I'm sorry, I'm stumbling over my words today. People who have topographical agnosia, whenever they walk into a room or any place, no matter how many times they go there, nothing ever looks familiar. They have no ability to create a visual memory of the scene around them. 
And so they are unable to create a mental map of their surroundings. And that's the part of the condition that my son has. And so my son was forced to count his steps and turns and to teach himself to do this as a toddler because he has no ability to create a mental map of his surroundings because everywhere he goes, it's like he's being, nothing around him is recognizable ever. And he also has a condition called simultanagnosia. Simultanagnosia used to be considered very, very rare, just like prosopagnosia used to be considered very, very rare. And of course, now that we're learning more and more about CBI, we're learning that these things actually aren't rare at all. They're actually very common symptoms of a very common visual impairment. But for my son, his simultanagnosia, it makes it, if you think about, I think most typically sighted people can imagine what tunnel vision is like, right? That's an ocular form of visual impairment where they imagine that everything is dark on the outside and then in the center of their visual field, they have a, like a tunnel of visual acuity in the center. Well, my simultanagnosia, what it means is, is that outside area is not dark. He actually has full visual fields and on his visual field tests, he would score as normal because he can perceive light and movement and also vague, blurry shapes. But it's so blurry and vague that it's impossible to be useful. And then in the very center of that blurry, colorful, foggy cloud, there's a tiny, tiny hole in the center about the size as if you were looking through like a McDonald's coffee straw. He's got a little bitty hole in the center of his visual field through which he has normal acuity, and the only things that he can see that we can, like we see, are words, letters, numbers, simple shapes. Nothing else to him is ever recognizable. And so when I was telling you, your listeners, that he sees with words, what that means is my son uses, he has an enormous memorized verbal taxonomy of descriptors that he uses to identify everyone and everything he encounters in daily life. And he identifies them by the way we describe them, not by how they look. So for example, I had cataract surgery about a year and a half ago, and I used to wear glasses all the time. So my characteristics used to be tall, blonde glasses. And when my son thinks those words to himself, he just gets a momentary flash of what I look like. It doesn't leave any impression in his visual memory. If I say like Mona Lisa, I know everybody listening right now is thinking, oh, I know exactly what that looks like. And you can picture the long dark hair and that face and that mysterious smile, right? Well, my son can't do that. But when he thinks his verbal descriptors of every object or person that he's got memorized, he gets a little glimpse just a momentary flash of what I look like. And so when he was in the fMRI for the Harvard Neuroplasticity Research Study, they actually were able to capture this in the fMRI because my son is actually the only person in the world known to be able to choose to see or not see with his eyes wide open, which means that when he's not thinking verbal descriptors to himself, he literally has no conscious perception of sight. And they captured that in the fMRI. And again, you can read about that in the paper that I, I'll put in the show notes for you guys. So are there any known treatments for CVI or anything to help his vision? So CVI is caused by brain damage. And as we know, there are no cures for brain damage. However, I would say that we all, all human beings have what's called neuroplasticity. 
And neuroplasticity is the ability for the brain to develop new connections as it learns. And this is not a magical thing. It's something that every single person on the planet experiences every time they learn something that they didn't know before. And so that's when your brain makes a new connection. Neuroplasticity is really, really strong in the early years because especially between the ages of birth to age three, the brain is actually still growing in size. So it is creating monumental connections all the time because it's actually adding to itself, right? So neuroplasticity is extremely strong between birth and age three, but it never stops. And so I would say the vast majority of people who have CVI, children who have CVI, are severely developmentally delayed. And yet, my son, he had all normal developmental milestones and took the training wheels off his bike when he was four. And the reason I think that my son had such a good outcome despite being born almost completely blind was because I am actually an early childhood music and movement specialist. And there are more than two decades of research demonstrating that music and movement in early childhood have tremendous neurological benefits, including better balance, coordination, fine and gross motor skills, auditory discrimination, reading and math ability, and IQ, and also proprioception, which is knowledge of where your body is in space. And so, these decades of research have shown that children, if they receive high quality music and movement experiences before the age of seven, they have better all of these areas that we talked about, but they're stronger in those areas than children who don't receive it. And this is true for all children. And so my son, just by accident of having a music teacher for a mother, did receive quite intensive music and movement therapy from birth just because I thought it was fun. So, Sebastian, I will tell your listeners, the reason Sebastian has CBI is because I, he, I almost died giving birth to him. I was diagnosed with preeclampsia three days before his due date, so he was full term. And um, when they, um, I coded from the epidural, and my blood pressure crashed to 40 over 26, and the last thing I remember is the anesthesiologist saying, it's okay, close your eyes, and then I got the six-inch needle of epinephrine to my heart. So I was unconscious for six hours of my labor, and when I woke up, according to my husband, who was present the whole time, there, the doctor said that there was no fetal distress, and so I was not given a, an emergency C-section. I um, was awake for about two hours, paralyzed from the chest down, and about two hours later, then I gave birth the regular way. And my son had a nine. I was told he had a nine on his APGAR score, which is really good. And we were told he was completely, totally healthy, and I took him home from the hospital thinking I had a perfectly healthy baby. But we know now that Sebastian and I both had strokes. Sebastian actually has a partial photographic memory for text that he inherited from me. Mine disappeared after he was born, and I didn't notice because I wasn't writing research papers. I was busy being a stay-at-home mom and playing with a baby at home. And so I just didn't, didn't even think about it. And I just thought, you know, I felt a little extra ditzy and forgetful. And all of my other friend moms in our playgroup were complaining about having mom brain. And I just thought that my extra ditziness was just that, that it was just... We know mother's brains actually change after childbirth, right? And so there, there are changes to the maternal mother's brain. 
So I attributed it to mom brain and I didn't realize that I'd had a small stroke too. But I know now that that's exactly what caused it. So anyway, to get back to what you were saying, in addition to the benefits of music and movement that can really help with things like physical development um, and also intellectual development, we happen to know that Sebastian quite literally taught himself to see with art. I always joked that I gave birth to an artist, that he was just born that way. And Sebastian quite literally spent his entire childhood as many hours a day as he could drawing, painting, and sculpting. And he literally memorized all of the verbal characteristics of everything around him by drawing and painting and sculpting it. And he had three artworks on exhibit at the Albert Kemper Museum when he was 17 years old in St. Joseph, Missouri. Wow. And um, he's, yeah, so he, um, he taught himself to see with art. And it didn't cure his vision. I want to be really, really clear to all the listeners out there. When my son developed this neuroplastic adaptation, the ability to use verbal mediation to process his vision, he didn't become typically sighted. He's blind. He is almost completely blind. But he has the ability to capture quick glimpses of things, and then that image just disappears forever until he repeats it and says, thinks the words to himself again. So my son is very severely, severely visually impaired with no ability to recognize faces, places, objects, the way that typically sighted people can, and just this tiny patch of acuity in the center of his visual field. And for everybody out there, you should know that it's actually common for people who have CVI to have normal acuity. My son passed every vision test every year because our optometric exams are just decades out of date. Once we figured out that Sebastian had CVI and I understood what simultanagnosia were, was and other common symptoms, it took me less than a minute in my kitchen to come up with simple screening assessments in my kitchen, a music teacher. So my son could have been quickly and easily screened as a toddler had any one of his doctors known how to do it. So with the doctors, was it that they were just ignorant and didn't want to do the test or there just wasn't enough information and they weren't trained on how to do the they test? Were, they weren't trained. They aren't trained. And it's really sad because in the United States right now, the vast majority of teachers of the visually impaired as well are not trained in CBI. And right now the only teacher training program, the only university teacher of the visually impaired training program that even requires coursework on CVI that I'm aware of is UMass in Boston. And so the vast majority of teachers of the visually impaired have no training in CVI and the vast majority of them, their caseload, more than 50% of their students have CVI. And it's just different from ocular blindness. It's, I mean, it's still blindness, but it's different. So yeah, there's, it's just a problem. And fortunately, I'm really, really grateful because Dr. Barry Cran at the Perkins School for the Blind, who co-wrote the paper with Dr. Latvi Maribet on my son, he has done tremendous work on helping to educate um, low vision professionals on CBI. And he has been, I know this past summer, he had, a, I think it was 250 students, 250 optometrists, I believe it was, that he was presenting to, 
to them about CVI, and he was using my son's case as one of the examples about how CVI can present. And so there has been tremendous progress since 2017. And I would also like to mention that in June this past year, Perkins hosted the CVI Collaboration for Change Conference. And Dr. Michael Chiang, who is the director of the National Eye Institute, which is a division of the National Institute of Health, was there as the keynote speaker. And one of the wonderful things that has happened this past year is that the NIH, the National Institute for Health, has recognized CVI as the number one cause of visual impairment in the developed world, and that's huge, because before they were saying it was rare, and it's not. It's more common than ocular blindness. And the second thing that came out of that conference, um, or actually before that conference happened, but just this year, the NIH has... Um, they have approved CVI as um, an area of interest for further study, which means that for the very first time, CVI will qualify for federal dollars for research funding, and that just happened this year as well. And so that's another huge step forward. So we've come a very long way since 2017. Yeah, that's just um, incredible how much work y'all have done to think that most of these places never had, you know, any training in it or considered it extremely rare when it's a serious issue that y'all have gotten this far and that's just really incredible really incredible well thank right. you a lot of people have worked very hard to get to get to this place so i'm you know i'm just one small one small part of it there's a lot of people who've done far more than i have so what kind of um the kind of uh I forgot what it's called. The testing sort of that you you made up in your kitchen that you said. <laughs> so one of the common symptoms of CVI, um, my son doesn't actually have this one, but a very common symptom of CVI is lower visual field loss. So if you could imagine if you like held your hands up to your nose, like flat in front of your nose, and if you couldn't see anything beneath your nose. So, for example, you had never once seen the clothes you were wearing after you put them on. You had never once seen the stairs as you were going down them. You had never once seen the soccer ball as it came up to your feet, right? Nothing. None of that existed. So that's a really common symptom of CVI, and it's super easy to test for that. And you know how eye doctors like to hold two fingers up and ask you how many fingers they're holding up? Well, mm -hmm. you just hold them down low, <laughs> <laughs> right? This isn't... Okay. This is, that not brain surgery here, right? This is super easy to check for. Um, what I did for my son's simultan agnosia to see if he had that, um, I used a book and a pencil. And so I asked my son to look at a sentence in the middle of the book. And I asked him if he looked at the beginning of the sentence and kept his eyes on the first word, how many words he could see at a time. Right, like how much yeah. you could see. Because I'm like, I told him, I'm like, when I look at this page, I can see the entire page. What can you see? And that's what was missing from all these crazy doctors that we saw. Like everyone kept demanding that we prove he couldn't see and nobody asked him once, what can you see? Right. And that that's the you have to ask people, what what is it like for you? What can you see? Right. And so with his eyes focused on the first word of a sentence in the middle of the page. At that time, he was able to see about a word and a half. And so then I just took my pencil and I just slid the point of it until I found the edge of where it became clear. And I just like made a circle 
like around this little patch where he could see. Since that time, my son has also a um, serious chronic illness and it has, um, it, it has neurological implications that has actually affected his vision. So he actually has far less vision than that now. He's able to see a couple of letters at a time in 10 point font. So he's very severely visually impaired, blind. So yeah, so that's what I did. Those are just a couple things. So the doctors almost put the burden on you to test him and see if he couldn't see instead of having them test him and ask him if he could see or not. Well, we wouldn't have had, the only reason that we got help getting a diagnosis was because of Lucas Frank, who is the senior program director at the Seeing Eye Guide Dog Organization. Um, I reached out to the Seeing Eye within days of figuring out that Sebastian was navigating by counting his steps and turns. And I talked with Pauline Cerf Alexander, who answered my very desperate phone call because I was pretty much a mess. And she was very kind on the phone and she asked me, she was like, well, you know, is he bumping into things? And I was like, well, no, he's never bumped into anything. And I'll tell you, all your listeners who are going, well, how could he be blind and not bump into anything? Sebastian has something called blind sight. Blind sight is the ability to move through space blind and yet have an awareness that there are obstacles in your path. It doesn't mean that you can see the obstacles. It's like an unconscious awareness. We have known about CVI and blind sight since World War I. It has been researched since World War I. This is not news. And if you'd like more information about blind sight, I would highly suggest that you look up the NPR article, The Blind Woman Who Saw Rain. And I can also include a link to that in your, um, your show notes as well. And it talks about a woman who lost all of her vision except her motion perception. As an adult, she had a stroke and she lost her ability to perceive light and color and everything except motion. And so she noticed one day that she could see the motion of the rain coming down on the window. And she noticed that she could see the motion of her daughter's ponytail as she skipped ahead of her. And so blind sight, I think, is a function of motion perception. And it allows my son to move through space without ever crashing or bumping into things. And so he passed completely as typically sighted. And now I've completely forgotten what your question was. I know I got sidetracked there. <laughs> <laughs> oh, because you said about um, putting it on us. Yes, exactly. So what happened was I was talking about Lucas Frank. Lucas was the one who just kept coming back and saying, how's it going? And I'm like, oh, it's not going well. And eventually this wonderful man connected me with Jim Deramaic, who is the head of rehabilitation at the Johns Hopkins Eye Clinic. And Jim donated a $150 course on CVI to me so that I could be a better advocate for my son. It was an online course, and I took it over Memorial Day weekend in 2017. And it was, you know, three days of, like, confirmation of everything that I knew was going on with my son. And then armed with all of this information, with all the correct terminology, on Tuesday morning, I emailed Mr. Deramay and was like, okay, here's the list, this giant list of everything that's wrong with my son's vision. What do I do now? And he gave me a couple of suggestions. And even with his recommendations, even with all the correct terminology, I still couldn't get help here in the U.S. And so after that last frustrating doctor's appointment, I just said, I'm going to find the guy who taught the course on CVI. And that, of course, was Professor Gordon Dutton in Scotland. 
and I tracked him down through um, cbiscotland.org, which is considered by the experts to be one of the very best sources of factual information about CVI. And I, in a day or two, got a response from Professor Dutton, and he was like, how can I help you? And I just about fell apart to be treated so kindly. And so Professor Gordon Dutton arranged uh, and introduced me to Dr. Sylvie Chakran, who is the director of the unit of vision and cognition at La Fondation Rothschild in Paris, France. And he arranged, um, he coordinated with her so that they could create a research study on my son. And I actually had to take my son to Paris for a week-long research study before I could get anybody here in the United States to listen to us. And the reason for that is because my son has a normal appearing MRI, and we were repeatedly and incorrectly told that there was no possible way that my son could have a brain-based vision impairment if he had a normal MRI. Well, that's just wrong. An MRI only shows the structure of the brain. It does not show the function. And so approximately, I think it's even more than 10% of cerebral palsy patients have a normal appearing MRI and they still have cerebral palsy, and the number is believed to be the same for people who have CVI. So when we went to Paris, Dr. Chakran gave my son what's called a SPECT scan. A SPECT scan is a nuclear medicine test that shows um, where the blood flow in the brain is, and any areas of the brain that are not receiving blood flow are dead tissue. And so we found significant brain damage from his birth trauma, um, and the spec scan and with that information finally we were able to come home and have actual proof that there was damage to my son's right fusiform gyrus of the brain indicating that indeed he does have prosopagnosia as well as in other places too and so that's when we were finally able to get connected with dr barry cran at the perkins school for the blind who was amazing and spent months with us taking history doing zoom calls hundreds of emails and i had to explain to him everything we figured out about how Sebastian was seeing with words and how we figured it out and everything that had happened. And then, of course, with Dr. Latfi Maribet, we connected with him too. And Dr. Maribet, the study of the Harvard, the um, Laboratory for Visual Neuroplasticity paid all of our expenses to fly Sebastian and I out in March of 2018. And Dr. Merritt was, Maribet was awesome. He came and picked us up at the hotel in his car and got our luggage for us. And it was so amazing after being treated so horribly for so long. And um, yeah, and that's, you know, we had actual proof of everything that we had been saying from the beginning. So it was a, it was a very, very worthwhile experience because we had to get a diagnosis for my son in order for him to qualify for orientation and mobility training with the white cane. I was able to secure for Sebastian occupational therapy for navigation through the Shirley Ryan Ability Lab, and they were phenomenal. And he spent about four months, we went three times a week into downtown Chicago, and his occupational therapist taught my son how to use Google Maps to navigate, and he taught my son, she taught my son how to use public transportation, how to use the subway, how to use the, um, the buses, the city buses, etc., and everything. And we would practice either before or after each appointment, and I would have my son take me on the subway, take me on the bus, whatever skill he had learned last time or what had learned that day, and we would go. So he basically got twice as much occupational therapy. 
But during that time, one day, and it was in, I think, May or early June, it was incredibly hot, 95 degrees, and we were out practicing his roots around the art school there, and it was 95 degrees, and we'd walked about three miles, and my son went entirely blind in front of me and became unable to read his phone, and that's when I knew that he, his situation was even more dire and that he needed a white cane in case that ever happened again. So this is a symptom that's very common to CVI. It's called visual fatigue or visual tiring, and it is very common. And what it means is that people who have CVI very often experience fluctuations in their vision. They can go entirely blind randomly just because they're overheated, overtired, ill, overwhelmed, whatever. And this is a very common and well-documented symptom of CVI. And we just had not seen it, didn't had not recognized it in my son until that day. And so, um, yeah, that was very scary because I'm like, well, he needs to have a white cane. Because imagine if you're out in a busy city and you can randomly go blind and have no control over it, completely blind, right? This is life-threatening. And so once we had the diagnosis from Dr. Barry Cran, we qualified for um, leader dogs for the blind. And they were absolutely wonderful. They flew my son out. They paid all his expenses. And he got a week-long training session at leader dogs. And they taught him. They actually worked with him blindfolded so that he would be prepared in case the worst happened. Sebastian is really, really careful about going out when it's very hot because he knows that he can go completely blind if he's overheated, et cetera. But you just never know when it could happen, you know. So um, he's he's safe now. He, he can live independently, and he is safe to go off to college, which he has done. He has his own apartment downtown, and he lives and goes to school independently, and that's all we ever wanted for him. That that is just incredible. I mean, going from, you know, not knowing what the disease it, the disease is, not even knowing that he had anything, to now being able to live by himself, to navigate wherever he needs to. It's it's just truly incredible, truly incredible. Yes, and it's just this. It's a tragedy that it took so long and it was so difficult because honestly, I mean, my son should have had a white cane when he was little. Right. As a toddler, he should have had one. And it's just I have to be really clear with this people. I know many adults and young adults and teens who have CVI now because of my advocacy work and all of them, many of them went into their teens or even into adulthood without a diagnosis. And at least one of them is legally blind. I mean, legally blind and didn't get diagnosed, was misdiagnosed with autism. And these people suffer terrible, terrible trauma from going undiagnosed. And I'll tell you why. It is terrifying to be blind and have nobody around you know that. Imagine being blind and having everybody around you expect you to do everything that typically sighted people are doing and putting you in a regular ed PE class where you have lower visual field loss and you can't see the soccer ball, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> I mean, it's the stories these people have. It is so heartbreaking and so unnecessary and so cruel. And so that's why I do what I do. 
So I apologize. I don't know. Uh, what is the white cane that you? Oh, okay. So um, a white cane is it? Um, it's a tool that people with visual impairments and blindness use to help them to not bump into things. It's usually colored white, although um, it's become fashionable lately for people to decorate them, you know, okay. but they use it to sweep the sidewalk in front of them to detect any obstacles in their path. So my son usually carries his in his backpack. His, his folds up. He doesn't need it all the time. So you have to understand that the vast majority of people who identify as blind, some of them use guide dogs, some of them use a white cane, and a lot of them use nothing at all like my son does, right? So my son carries the white cane in his backpack for emergencies in case he suffers from visual exhaustion or visual fatigue and he goes completely blind. He told me this last year at Christmas time that he discovered he changed schools and is now in a bigger campus. And he has found that using his cane on campus while he's traveling from the different buildings is so much easier for him. He was at a very small school before with just a couple of buildings that weren't that far apart. And he has found that just the whole uh, traveling with the white cane allows him to save the tiny bit of vision that he has for when he's in class. And he doesn't have to rely on his vision when he's traveling. And it just makes his whole life so much easier. And so, yeah, he actually is using his white cane on campus now because it just makes it makes classwork easier for him. Okay, okay. I, I had just not um, heard of it a uh, reference to as like a white cane. Just... Oh, okay. Yeah, well, that's what it is. It's, you know, it's <laughs> something many people who are blind or visually impaired use, but not all of them. Well, I think it is... Would... Oh, you go ahead. I was just going to say, I wanted to go back and talk about visual tiring and what causes it, because I know a lot of people are going, that's not possible that you could just randomly go blind, right? Because they've never heard of it. It is absolutely completely possible, and it actually does happen all the time to people who have CVI. So visual fatigue or visual tiring is a function of blood pressure. And I don't know if any of you have ever fainted for any reason. I've only fainted once. I had a vasovagal reaction one time and I passed out. And when I passed out, my vision went dark and then I lost consciousness. And so that's a function of blood pressure. The fact that your vision goes out dark before you faint, that happens because your blood pressure drops. People who have CVI, CVI is caused by brain damage, and so they have much less visual processing power than typically sighted people do. Remember, we talked about how more than 40% of your brain is devoted to visual processing, right? So imagine, you know, 20% of that is damaged or something, you know, I mean, or however much is damaged. And so because they have so much less visual processing power to begin with, they're really sensitive to fluctuations in their own blood pressure, and that can be those fluctuations can be caused by being overheated, overstressed, overtired, ill, all those things. And so that's what causes visual fatigue or visual exhaustion. And it is it's it's not controllable. It happens when it happens, and it's not people being lazy or obstinate or refusing to do work. It's because they literally can't see, and they. People who have CBI are routinely labeled as liars and fakers and, I mean, all this stuff. It's just sad just because people don't understand common symptoms of this common visual impairment. So, so people with CBI and I guess people who are visually impaired in general, it's not just a problem 
with the brain or with the eyes, it's blood pressure. It's it's so much more than just not being able to see or not being able to recognize. Sure. Well, and you have to understand, too, part of the reason that CBI is such a huge crisis now in the developed countries is because our NICU care has increased exponentially in quality over the last couple of decades, which means that we have all of these teeny tiny newborn babies that are very, very premature who didn't used to survive, who now fortunately they do, but they have brain bleeds and they have CBI and they have epilepsy and they have cerebral palsy often. And so we got very, very lucky. Sebastian only has CVI, you know, but many of these children and adults now who have CVI also have cerebral palsy, and they also have epilepsy. And so they can have very intense needs beyond just their vision. So yes. That is um, inspiring. Well, I'm really grateful that I've had this opportunity to talk with you today about CVI and about my book, Eyeless Mind, a memoir about seeing and being seen. And I would love to answer any questions that you have. Um, I can be happy to answer anything. We're very glad to get the word out about this type of stuff. It's, uh, it's like it's not known, but it's like super common. Well, and that's just it. Thank you for saying that because we CBI moms call it the common disability that no one's ever heard of. And it's just true. I actually just did a podcast interview yesterday and the podcast interviewer was a mom. She has three kids and one of them, she told me at the beginning, has autism. And then at the end, she's like, you know what? I think he has CBI because he can't recognize his aunts. <laughs> It's like, yeah, yeah, you know, that could, that's a symptom, you know, and it's just how sad, right, that like you have to find out what your kid's disability is on a podcast interview and not because you took him to the doctor 57 times, right? Yeah. 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 So you really, so the doctors, the professional people are just completely didn't do anything. Well, it's because the lack of the diagnostic code. They don't get any training in it. And it's not because they're evil or bad people. They literally just don't get any training in it whatsoever. Yeah. And so, and like I said, Dr. Barry Cran has done just tremendous work and others as well in educating the low vision community about CBI. He's been using Sebastian's case file as one example of how CBI can present. And he's, like I said, just this past summer, I think it was 250 optometrists that he was you know, educating about it and using my son's casework to do that as well as other people's too. So yeah, there's been, there's been enormous progress since 2017, but we still have such a long way to go. So are there any, I guess, advocacy organizations for the awareness of CVI that are known? Um, I think I would go to CVI Scotland. That would be the primary one that I would recommend because first of all, it's overseen for medical and scientific accuracy by Professor Gordon Dutton and it is considered by 
experts to be the or one of the very best sources of factual scientifically and medically accurate information about CVI. I will send you a link for that too to put into the show notes and it is wonderful. It's very easy to access for people who know nothing about CVI and for parents. It's also got great information for professionals, teachers, and um, low vision, you know, ophthalmologists and optometrists. There are videos you can watch that can give you an idea of what it's like to look through the eyes of someone who has CVI. Every single person who has CVI has differences in their symptoms. They experience it differently. So you can't watch one video and think, oh, well, now I know how everyone who has CVI sees, right? Because, for example, my son does not have lower visual field loss, right? And so that, but many people do, you know, so there's, it depends on the, where in the brain your brain damage is located, what your specific symptoms are, you know? So, yeah, but I would go to CVI Scotland. I think that's a fabulous resource. And Perkins also has a wonderful CVI Now or outreach organization, and they have classes that you can take that are wonderful. And, yeah, so there's Perkins School for the Blind, CVI Scotland. I would start there. Well, I encourage all of our listeners to go to the website, to read your book, to look at the research paper, just to learn more about CVI and um, – what it is and how it affects people. So we just appreciate you coming on the podcast so, so well, much and spreading awareness. Thank you so much. This is my life's work because I just, I knew the reason we wrote the book is because we knew that my son couldn't be the only person like this. And we were right. I mean, they're just, there's tens of thousands of people out there just waiting to be found and diagnosed. And, you know, it, it's, the things you can do to help these people usually aren't that tricky, you know, maybe some Braille, maybe a white cane, you know. <laughs> There's a lot you can do to help these people that, you know, it's they don't need surgery, they don't need, you know, expensive drugs, you know, they just need some help and some respect and care, you know. And so thank you so much for having me today. I'm so grateful I had a chance to meet you all. I hope you have a great, great success with the rest of your year. Well, thank you. Thank you so much. All right. You have a great day. You too. You too. Thank you. Thanks.